7th, AUL7, of the Anatomy of the Upper Limb, uh, for those keeping score. And today we're going to talk about the flexor anatomy of the forearm. The next podcast will be on the extensor aspect of the forearm. And I'll include in this one the osteology of the radius and the next the osteology of the ulna. Um, Before then, if I can ask people to visit our contribution site, uh, if you like these podcasts on anatomy, it's a different way of teaching. Uh, There's been a lot of feedback that's been very encouraging. There are some areas of change that have then suggested some new topics, which is great. Um, But if you feel like you can make a contribution so we can improve our standards and and just continue with this process, uh, the curriculum goes on for the next, I think, about 18 months or so. Um, So we'll be doing the lower limb later this year and I think probably towards the end of the year, the thorax. Um, I want to include some specialised embryology podcasts as well. But if you feel you can make a contribution, if you can visit patron.podbean.com slash anatopod and I'll put that that's capital A-N-A-T-O-P-O-D all uh, capitals I'll put that on the additional um, uh, website uh, and the attachment to this uh, podcast thanks let's get on with it before we start proper on the flexor Um, aspect of the forearm. Uh, I can draw some parallels, of course, between the upper and lower limbs. And I think this helps in the idea of remembering the anatomy, if you can understand a kind of structural homology between these two limbs. Even before we consider muscle origins and insertions, which I'm told are not that important, but they clearly are important if you're going to tackle hand sepsis or you're going to tackle an injury of tendons at the wrist. We need, uh, or looking at vascular access in the forearm, we need to know these things. So I do include them in um, uh, these podcasts. In an effort to understand how the limbs work, we can draw some broad brush sweeps in how the biomechanics of the limbs function and where similarities lie. And even, uh, we can do so even if at the moment we don't quite know the specifics, we can at least appreciate the structure. There are in the forearm and also in the leg, uh, um, there is a two-bone structure, the preaxial bones. In this case, the thumb uh, is the uh, radius, in the case of the hallux, uh, uh, the tibia with the post-axial bones, respectively the ulna and fibula. In the upper limb, of course, both forearm bones participate in the elbow, and there's a supination-pronation possibility, whereas only the tibia participates in knee articulation, and there's no pronation-supination capability. But that's not to say that the movements of the ankle, for example, are simple. There's the possibility there of eversion and inversion, and of course the hinge action of dorsiflexion and plantar flexion. So all of the complexity of ankle movements involves those basic four functions. 
very much able to produce a kind of circumduction very similar to the shoulder. The asymmetric origins and insertions of the muscles and their tendons permits activities in the lower limb like inversion to occur whilst the principal action of a muscle like the tibialis anterior for example is acting. But also we can see that the insertion of this muscle into the base of the first metatarsal and a little bit of the medial cuneiform is virtually identical to the insertion on the undersurface, the plantar surface, of these same bones of the peroneus, or now called the fibularis, longest tendon. Now we're going to be talking about the upper limb, but I'm trying to explain that there's some homology with the lower limb. So a similar mechanism exists on the outer aspect of the foot for eversion and either dorsi or plantar flexion. And I'll go into this more when we do the lower limb later this year, but my point relates rather to the design. In this case, the muscles on the inner and outer foot act as guy ropes and their insertions are pretty much identical, but on either side, dorsal and plantar of the foot. That's the design. And we see it too in the wrist. The flexor muscle, flexor carpi radialis, is inserted as a stout tendon into the base of the second and third metacarpals. And I'll expand on this a little at some length later. But on the dorsal aspect of the hand, the same insertion is made by the two tendons, in this case of the extensor carpi radialis longus and the extensor carpi radialis brevis muscle, respectively. Now, I appreciate that the flexor and extensor muscles are structured differently, but in this case, we can see that the three muscles I've mentioned function also as guy ropes on the radial or the preaxial side of the wrist in the way we've defined it. But they both act in concert, in cooperation, if you like, to radially distort the wrist, uh, the business of trying to get your thumb to touch your forearm, which most people can't do. But... These muscles and their tendons, the flexor carpi radialis and the extensor carpi radialis brevis and longus, then act as radial or preaxial guy ropes in this kind of setup. And to carry this analogy, well, it's a truism actually, a bit further, the ulna or leeward side has the front guy rope as the flexor carpi ulnaris and the back or extensor guy rope as the extensor carpi ulnaris both of which have similar bony origins and whose insertional pivot points are into the base of the fifth metacarpal and the pisiform bone, spreading out through rather complex ulnarwood ligaments and the deep palmar fascia. Now, my point about all of this is to show how the anatomical origins and the insertions of the forearm musculature has a biomechanical purpose. So the bony arrangement means that the elbow is a more stable joint than the knee. And the way the two leg bones grip the talus provides extraordinary ankle stability. There are other homologies, of course, with the upper and lower limb. And understanding these, I think, can reduce the amount of learning and remembering that's required. In the extensor aspect of the forearm, for example, the three tendons of the thumb, that's to the terminal phalanx, to the proximal phalanx, and to the base of the metacarpal, so noted the extensor pollicis longus, the extensor haliusus longus, and the extensor pollicis brevis, are identical, really, in their insertions for the hallux. Uh, the EPL equivalent is the EHL. Uh, 
and the EPB effectively is um, sort of part of the rather unique uh, extensor digitorum brevis muscle on the dorsum of the foot, so that becomes the so-called separate extensor hallucis brevis. We'll get into that later on. The APL <clears throat> has its equivalent into the in the lower limb as the tibialis anterior, even if the muscular origins differ between the two limbs. Now, I accept that my biomechanical arguments don't account for the fact that in the lower limb there are no real counterparts for the upper limb for the radial wrist extensors like the extensor carpi radialis longus and extensor carpi radialis brevis or for the extensor carpi ulnaris for that matter. But it doesn't affect the way that we should understand the biomechanical functions respectively. The flexor origin homologies are quite striking uh, between the upper and lower limbs. The flexor digitorum superficialis, with its arch between the radius and the ulna, resembles the soleus muscle, although that muscle is interrupted, of course, by the presence of the calcaneus. The structure of the talus, with its sustentaculum tali, also means that the medial tendons, the tibialis posterior, the flexor digitorum longus, the flexor hallucis longus in particular, have to take a sort of medial swerve around it to get into the foot, which creates a different line of muscle pull and a different medial longitudinal foot arch stability. Now I mention all of these things because uh, I would recommend that when we've gone through the lower limbs that you come back to this um, uh, upper limb, um, these podcasts, and again, knowing what you know in the lower limbs, you can then reassess the points I'm making about uh, structural homology. Now, we should, before we start uh, on the flexor aspect of the forearm, uh, <coughs> return to the cubital fossa, because we haven't really quite covered that. As I've already stated, it also has homology with the popliteal fossa, and the student should know this area well on prosected specimens. What are its boundaries, and, and why should I really care? Well, it's a diamond-shaped area between the pronator teres and the brachioradialis, and an imaginary line that's really drawn between the two humeral epicondyles as a horizontal line. Because we create this artificial region, a bit if you take your mind back in the head and neck to the pterygopalatine fossa, we created a kind of artificial corridor there, we create a sort of structure which has a roof and a floor. The same, I think, can be thought of in the inguinal canal, of course. <clears throat> we'll get on to that um, in future podcasts as well, although that won't be till, uh, I think, next year. The roof um, of the cubital fossa is really only the deep fascia of the forearm, but it's the medial extension also of that scimitar of the bicipital ponurosis. On top of this medially is the basilic vein and the medial cutaneous nerve of the forearm. But under there is the brachial artery, and usually at this level, superficially, uh, medial is the large median nerve. Now, as I think I've said already, this is pretty important. If someone shoves their hand through a glass window or a, a door, as I did twice when I was an adolescent, both accidental, I assure you, uh, I fell through two plate glass doors. Um, 
I've said before that arterial bleeding from a wound like that often signifies a median nerve injury. And so the anatomy here is also very important for a direct exposure of someone presenting with a brachial embolus because here a laziest incision across the cubital fossa not only heals well but it provides an exceptional exposure to the radial and ulnar artery takeoff for an embolectomy. It allows you to directly pass under vision uh, the Fogarty catheter down each vessel regardless really of the height of the bifurcation. Of course, on the lateral side, superficially in the cubital fossa is the lateral cutaneous nerve of the forearm, which we've already met, and is, which we recall as the cutaneous continuation of the musculocutaneous nerve, and alongside is the cephalic vein. The floor of the fossa is largely just the brachialis muscle, and in the lower lateral part, you may see a bit of the supinator muscle. The fossa contents are the median nerve, the brachial artery and the bicipital tendon, so not really very complicated. Lifting up the brachioradialis, you'll see laterally the radial nerve, which is breaking up into its superficial branch running under the brachioradialis and a deep branch, so-called, before piercing the supinator, and which then in the extensor compartment of the forearm is then called the posterior interosseous nerve. It's that compartment nerve of the extensor forearm. The radial nerve here has given its branches already to the brachioradialis and to the lateral aspect of the brachialis, as I've already discussed that dual nerve supply of the flexor muscles before. And it also gives a specific branch to the extensor carpi radialis longus. The deep branch of the radial nerve, in the way I've defined it, therefore innervates the extensor carpi radialis brevis and the supinator muscles. And this I might say is a little favourite question of mine in exams. What does the deep branch of the radial, uh, radial nerve innervate? And it's just there to inquire whether you understand the difference between the deep branch of the radial nerve and the posterior interosseous nerve. Now let's get into the flexor musculature of the forearm because that's a little complicated but once you understand its structure it's 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 okay to understand there are a couple of ways about thinking of this perhaps as a two or i think more correctly a three layer muscle system we can think of it this way really for surgical access approaches the majority of forearm exposure is in orthopaedics and therefore it's a safe and simple way of accessing, accessing the radius and the ulna for open reduction and internal fixation. But occasionally we need to think of the specific anatomy of the forearm in the drainage of deep sepsis, in the management of trauma, occasionally for specific vascular access, very occasionally for forearm amputations, this uh, latter bit about vascular access was part of a more distal open embolectomy, and in the past uh, it, was, it was traditionally general surgical uh, registrar fodder when you were training for the construction of temporary dialysis shunts, the so-called semino-brescia type of shunt or fistula that was typically performed between the cephalic vein and the radial artery. You used to have to go to intensive care and just uh, do those. <clears throat> now, I suppose it's vascular people are doing them. Um, but, um, you know, these were uh, routinely done. Also, if the radial artery was to be used in coronary artery bypass grafting, uh, we used to harvest those and proceeded by 
an Allen test, you can debate how useful that is, designed to determine the relative vascular dominance of the hand as either of the ulnar or radial artery. That test actually has very little practical predictive calculation, but these were the things that were done clinically uh, based on the anatomy of this area. The flexor muscles in the forearm are superficial and deep, with the flexor digitorum superficialis acting, as I've said, as that intermediary third layer. The superficial flexor muscles so defined all cross the elbow joint, whereas the three muscles of the deep group most certainly do not. Of course, the disposition of these deep muscles is a bit different. Now, in this superficial group are five muscles. They all have a common flexor origin from the anterior and antero-inferior part of the medial epicondyle, and they can best be thought of by placing the palm of the hand, or more correctly, the ball of the thumb on your own medial epicondyle and then splaying the fingers out. If you do that, the attachment is the common flexor origin, and the five superficial muscles are then towards the thumb as the pronator teres, to the index finger as the flexor, that's, that is to your thumb and index finger, to the index finger as the flexor carpi radialis, towards your middle finger as the flexor digitorum superficialis, or as some more beautifully refer to it, the flexor digitorum sublimus, and for the ring finger as the palmaris longus when that's present, and I'll come back to that little sticking point later. <clears throat> and finally, to the little finger as the flexor carpi ulnaris. Now, it should be pointed out that three of these five muscles have additional origins over and above the simple common flexor origin. So let's get into them um, individually. Now, Predator teres is a muscle with a dual origin, and those where there's a dual origin have major structures passing between their heads. That's the structure of the forearm. In this case, the median nerve lies between the two heads of pronator teres, and the deep head of the pronator teres separates that from the deep ulnar artery. A little bit of this muscle arises above the elbow, actually, from the lower section of the medial supracondylar ridge, but the main superficial belly, coming largely from the common flexor origin, lies in front and above the deep head, which actually arises as a smaller head from the medial aspect of the coronoid process of the ulna, just distal to an area which is called the sublime tubicle. Now, if you take out an ulna and check that out, if you have access to one, we remember that that's the distal attachment point the sublime tubicle of the anterior band of the medial collateral ligament of the elbow. But you can check that out as a little bump, which is high on the medial aspect of the coronoid process. And by definition, as we've already stated, the pronator teres is the medial border of the cubital fossa. The muscle is quite fleshy, but it runs downwards and radially to be inserted by a rather flat tendon into the convexity of the lateral radius. And if you look at a radius, it's in that margin between the palpable anterior and posterior oblique lines. The incision is actually over the bone as a very, very thin strip. And on occasion, the deep or ulnar head of the pronator teres is ligamentous, and sometimes it's effectively absent. Now, by the way, the muscle wraps around the forearm. Its contraction leads to pronation, as well, of course, as acting as an elbow flexor. 
if the ancleus is causing a little kind of distal bony abduction, then this muscle tends to pull on the radius and ulna to moderate that. In other words, to effectively hold the radius and ulna together as the elbow is being flexed. The muscle, by virtue of its origin, can be transferred to act as an extensor muscle in a radial nerve palsy and to strengthen a little bit of elbow extension. Um, it's been used, for example, in cerebral palsy to replace the extensor carpi radialis brevis. Now, of course, its nerve supply is the median nerve, as we know. It's a C5-6 function, and the highest branch here up to the pronateteres is usually given off just above the elbow. Now, the next muscle that we want to look at in the superficial group is the flexor carpi radialis. Now, that's really very recognisable at the wrist. Its flesh lies below that of the pronator teres, and it gives way to a very distinct rounded tendon about midway in the forearm, and that runs in its own compartment under the flexor retinaculum. We'll consider the flexor retinaculum in the podcast on the wrist, so the one after the next. But the flexor carpi radialis runs down in its own compartment under the flexor retinaculum. It ridges the trapezium to insert, as I've said before already, at the base of the second and the third metacarpals, equivalent to the extensor insertions of the extensor carpi radialis longus and brevis. My old anatomy professor, Ken Russell, used to use the flexor carpi radialis as a small wrist window cut to try and confuse his anatomy students in exams, and he'd turn it upside down and say, which side is that, and what is this, and so on. But the point that he was merely trying to make is that it should be readily distinguished from its nearby but deeper component, which is the fleshy flexor pollicis longus muscle. It's not only deeper, but it has fleshy fibres that join it right down to the wrist on its radial side. And so you could separate the flexor carpi radialis tendon from flexor pollicis longus. This sort of thing is pretty important if someone's put their arm through a windscreen or through, um, as they used to do when there, when there were no seat belts, or put it through a plate glass window, as I did. You've got to separate this as to what's the median nerve, find the radial artery, and separate these tendons off. And basically, if you know your anatomy, uh, you can do that. Um, this sort of fleshy tenderness separation between flexor pollicis longus and flexor carpi radialis um, is sort of homologous also to the appearance of the flexor hallucis longus in the leg, which is also fleshy down to the bone and is separable uh, at the uh, so-called tarsal tunnel um, uh, at its flexor retinaculum from the um, uh, tibialis posterior tendon. Um, of course, in a wrist laceration, the radial artery lies lateral to that flexor carpi radialis tendon. And if you bunch your own wrist up, you'll see the two tendons, flexor carpi radialis and pomaris longus, if you have one, together. Again, obviously, the flexor carpi radialis is innervated by the median nerve. It's a wrist flexor, but we can also see, as I've said before, that it's a radial abductor of the wrist, it can, of course, assist in elbow flexion and in forearm pronation, but that's not its prime function. And it's a radial gyrope in the way I've previously defined it.
We can move on now to the flex digitorum superficialis, and I prefer to think of this as the intermediate layer, as I've said. This muscle, too, has an additional origin and could be thought of as the homologue in the lower limb of the soleus, as we've already mentioned. I'm just really trying to reinforce and repeat these points because its origin is a fibrous arch which crosses over the neurovascular bundle, just as it does in the lower limb. On the medial side, it's not uncommon for the flexidigitorum superficialis to have some origin also from that sublime tubercle of the ulna that I've spoken about, as well as the medial collateral elbow ligament which attaches to it there. The fibrous arch continues as the radius origin of FDS, arising from virtually the entire length of the anterior oblique line of the radius. And that fibrous arch creates a definitive space for this effective compartment. That's the so-called space of Perona, more than theoretically a deep space infection site of the forearm, which can emanate from the palm and then track under the flexor retinaculum. In a later podcast, I'll outline the anatomy of palmar sepsis because I think that's important. It has a clinical relevance for the anatomy of the mid-palmar theta and hypothena spaces. Um, this space, that is the space of Perona, for example, has the potential of communicating with the mid-palmar space, and it's in front of the pronata quadratus at the wrist and in front of the deep flexor tendons, the flexor digitorum profundus. There's actually a nice article on it if you have access in 2013, the Journal of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, Space of Perona Infections, Experience in Management and Outcomes in a Regional Hand Centre. It's a study from Sheffield in the UK. The space was first described actually by, for those interested, by Francesco Perona. 1842 to 1908, he first described it in 1876. And it extends from the proximal margin of the carpal tunnel to the origin of the flexor digitorum superficialis. The roof is formed distally by the tendon sheaths of the flexor digitorum profundus and proximally by the flexor digitorum superficialis. Pranata quadratus and the interosseous membrane would form then the floor. And that sort of infection is suspected when there's a tendon median nerve compression with a suppurative distal flexor tenosynovitis. The origin of this sepsis here is that the proximal parts of the synovial sheaths actually then protrude here so that it's exactly the space where such a suppurative tenosynovitis will track into the forearm. And it should be that space proximally limited by the obliquity of origin of the FDS, which I've already mentioned. Small radial and ulnar incisions taking care of the neurovascular bundles on either side could then effectively drain and irrigate this space if you know your anatomy. Now, if we're to get into this region, that is, of the flexor digitorum superficialis, the great thing we need to do is to take care of the median nerve. The space can be surgically accessed via a curvilinear incision over the volar forearm, which would be radial to the flexor carpi ulnaris, and that could be accompanied, if you needed to, by carpal tunnel decompression. 
you then have to radially retract the superficial tendons uh, or you can retract them to the ulnar side and the space can be readily entered, protecting the median nerve and lower down its palmocutaneous branch. There's a little caveat here. The tendons variably form in the mid-forearm, but they have fleshy attachments there. The third and the fourth of the flexor digitorum superficialis typically lies in front of that going to the index and little fingers. And the flesh is a little bit more superficial rather than the other two where it's a bit deeper in origin. The important point here is that the median nerve lies in very loose areolar tissue but adherent to the undersurface of the flexor digitorum superficialis. So one has to be just very careful there in ensuring not to injure it if that space is entered and then lifted off. It's of real relevance in an injury of the forearm. I've pushed, as I said, my arm through two plate glass windows in a rowdier youth. Not once, but twice. I've got the scars to prove it. But luckily the median nerve was missed both times. Um, now, this particular beautiful muscle has the job of flexing the metacarpophalangeal joints while straightening the interphalangeal joints. It's supported in doing this um, somewhat uh, by the lumbrical muscles. Uh, and we'll go into that in the next podcast in the extensor tendon expansion. I could give a whole lecture on how this muscle was displayed in Rembrandt's The Anatomy Lesson of Dr. Nicholas Tulp, which is housed in its own room in the beautiful Moritzhuis in The Hague a most magnificent painting about which a great, great deal has been written, not least the fact that Rembrandt shows the common flexor origin of the muscle coming from the lateral and not the medial epicondyle. Perhaps I'll do a podcast on that magnificent but flawed painting. Please let me know on our Facebook site uh, if you'd like that. The flexor digitorum superficialis muscle, therefore flexing the metacarpophalangeal joint and extending the interphalangeal joint, is a rather unique function. The muscle may be tested on the flexion of the middle finger, holding back the index and ring fingers in extension. And that allows a very pure action, if you try it on your own hand now, in the absence of the flexor digitorum profundus tendons acting on the distal interphalangeal joints. They, of course, run to the digits alongside or deep with decussations to the FDS. And we'll go through that anatomy in a later podcast on the hand. This is the so-called camper's connection, as it's called, between the FDS and FDP and the distal phalanx after the 18th century Amsterdam prelector Petrus Camper born in 1722 and died in 1789. So just try that on your fingers, hold your ring and index finger back and then bend the middle finger and that's the purest action of the flexor digitorum superficialis. The next tendon we've got to talk about then, or muscle tendon, is the palmaris longus. Now the data on this muscle, that is its presence or absence, is a little bit variable and confusing. I was impressed with an article by Vanderhoft in the mid-1990s who studied nearly 200 cadavers with about 80% having both a palmaris and a plantaris. Overall, 5% missed 
the presence of a plantaris. And there's some sort of looking at those patients who've got palmaris tendons and looking at plantaris and seeing who had who one side or both sides missing. But the data on this, as I say, is a bit confusing. If the tendon was missing on one side in Van der Hoof's study, two-thirds missed the other tendon on the other side. A missing plantaris and palmaris on both sides turned out to be pretty rare at about 2%. If you are missing both your palmaris tendons, then you more often than not had your plantaris tendons. The reverse was a little less common, that is, no plantaris but maintained your palmaris. So there's a nice symmetry analysis also of this from Turkey, recently assessing patients by lower limb MRI and clinical examination of the wrist using what's called Schaefer's test, where you oppose your thumb and little finger and flex the wrist. And if you do that, you can see whether you've got a palmaris longus tendon. Clinically, I've got one on one side and a missing one on the other side. And in that little Turkish study, um, about 250 patients, I think the palmaris longus is absent unilaterally in about 15% of cases and bilaterally in about 7%. The plantaris was unilaterally present, uh, absent pardon me, in 20% and bilaterally in 4%. If the palmaris longus is absent on one side, three quarters of these had an ipsilateral plantaris. There's this sort of mixed data. If the palmaris longus is present in one hand, nearly 90% had an ipsilateral um, plantaris. The point here is that there's no clear statistical association between these muscles, despite the literature, probably because they have very different variations, very different origins, and they're not, as might be expected, dependent upon one another for their presence and or development. The point about knowing whether there are plantaruses, which you can do with an MRI, is to use it for tendon transfers. The same goes for palmaris longus, which you can clinically detect by a Schaefer test, and that can be useful in tendon transfers. Now, the palmaris longus is, of course, connected directly to the palmar aponeurosis, um, which was actually the very first thing we dissected in our anatomy class back in seven, 1973. I nearly said 1773 there. Um, this was the starting point. We had to start with the palmaris longus and the palmar fascia, which I think was a terrible place if you're trying to keep up any anatomist's or anatomy student's enthusiasm because of the fat of the palmar space. Pretty bad choice. But uh, the palmaris longus, of course, has been, in the way that it connects to the palmar aponeurosis, phylogenetically compared with the coccygeus muscle and the sacrospinous ligament attaching to the ischial spine. If it did evolutionarily exist, the tendons of the palmaris longus would have lain in front of the flexor digitorum superficialis as a fourth layer. The median nerve, of course, lies between this tendon, that is the palmaris longus, and that of the flexor carpi radialis. The tendon can certainly be useful, as I've said, in surgery as a tendon transfer, and also in radial nerve palsy, it can be used to act as a thumb abductor, which can assist in grasping objects. Now we've then got the flexor carpi ulnaris. That too is a bit of a pivotal muscle. It has a wide secondary head arising from the medial olecranon and the upper three quarters of the subcutaneous border of the ulna. 
Um, so it is in series, if you will, with the extensor carpi ulnaris. And that's the muscle that forms the bulk, that is the flexor carpi ulnaris, the muscle that forms the bulk of the inner side of the forearm. It has an aponeurosis here that lies in front of the flexor digitorum profundus muscle. And again, stylistically, the ulnar nerve runs between this humeral and ulnar head of the muscle. If you look at the wrist, you'll see the ulnar nerve lying medially to the ulnar artery, and these can be shown by lifting up or retracting medially the flexor carpi ulnar. It's pretty easy to do. So again, if the ulnar artery is injured there at the wrist when someone's stuck their hand through a plate glass window, then it's more likely if there's arterial bleeding that the ulnar nerve is also injured. Note the nerves run at the wrist on the outside of the vessels. The superficial radial nerve lies on the radial wood side of the radial artery, the ulnar nerve lying ulnar wood or medial wood of the ulnar artery. And I found that point really valuable in my clinical life. I once saw a colleague actually clipping the ulnar nerve, trying to stop the bleeding in an emergency room in a casualty from bleeding from an ulnar artery. An absolute no-no and a complete misunderstanding of the anatomy. Well, anyway, the flexor carpi ulnaris inserts, as does the extensor carpi ulnaris, into the pisiform bone, which acts like a sesamoid bone, because the forces are then transmitted through that attachment by the pisohamate and the pisometacarpal ligaments. And that shows homology again with the extensor carpi ulnaris, which is also inserted into the back of the base of the fifth metacarpal. The ulnar nerve, of course, supplies the flexor carpi ulnaris. It's a C7, C8 function, often by a leash of nerves. But most of that distribution actually occurs in the axilla via the lateral cord of the brachial plexus through C7, very occasionally from an aberrant branch of the middle trunk of the brachial plexus, which, as we know, is usually branchless. And that C7 connection can occasionally be, as I mentioned in another podcast, be provided directly from the median nerve to the ulnar nerve in the forearm as a so-called Martin-Gruber anastomosis. It isn't strictly an anastomosis, but rather a connection. And that, of course, is the medial guy rope, the flexor carpi ulnaris for wrist flexion, but also adduction, a deduction of the wrist the pisiform is also fixed during fine hypothena muscle movements and dexterous little finger movements. And this tendon too can be used to transfer, that's the flexor carpi ulnaris, as an extensor. Now one of the ways I like to test this muscle for an ulnar palsy takes into account all of the anatomy I've just mentioned. I often ask my postgraduate students to show me on me how they would test for an ulnar nerve injury or a median nerve injury and so on, and to talk me through the anatomy. And you would be surprised, this is postgraduate students, how poorly uh, this is done under an exam setting. So what I recommend in the case we're talking about the ulnar nerve and testing the ulnar nerve, we've got one movement that can test the ulnar nerve in three ways at the wrist. Hold out your palm now so the palm is facing upwards, and just push out your little finger, abduct it against resistance of your other hand. You can feel your own flexor carpi ulnaris contracting in the forearm because it's stabilising the pisiform. Of course, you're testing the ulnar nerve with this simple little manoeuvre in another two ways. 
you're also assessing the abductor digiti minimi, and I'll get to that in another podcast. And if you have the superficial subcutaneous muscle, the palmaris brevis, then you can see some wrinkling of the skin of your palm on the hypothenar eminence during finger abduction. Just by doing that simple little abduction of the little finger, you're testing the ulnar nerve in three ways. The functionality of the flexor carpi ulnaris, the abductor digiti minimi, and the palmaris brevis, if you have it. One of those subcutaneous muscles, like the dartos, right? The same sort of, um, uh, like the uh, platysma muscle. Now, of course, in the hand, such a point uh, naturally leads into the differences between the superficial branch of the ulnar nerve and its lower limb homologue, the superficial branch of the lateral plantar nerve. But suffice to say that the former has no real muscular branches apart from that palmaris brevis, and the rest is cutaneous, whereas the latter, that's the lateral plantar nerve, has muscular branches. And I'll cover that in the podcast later this year on the foot, but it includes the muscles on that side of the foot as well as more deeply those of the third interosseous space. Let's leave all that for the moment. But I often ask my postgraduate students to describe for me the homology, for example, between the median nerve and the medial plantar nerve, or the ulnar nerve and the lateral plantar nerve. And I want you to, in understanding these (coughs) nerve structures, appreciate how the hand and the foot are similar and how they're different. Now, what about these deep flexor muscles? As we're going on a little bit, I think what we'll do is finish up in our podcast on the deep flexor muscles here and then look in the next podcast at completing the neurovascular arrangement of the forearm uh, on its flexor side before going to the extensor side and doing the osteology of the radius and ulna um, in the second ha- uh, second um, instalment of this uh, podcast. Now let's get back to these three deep flexor muscles. They're three in number. They're the flexor pollicis longus, the flexor digitorum profundus, and the pronata quadratus. The flexor digitorum profundus. Now, here the morphology differs from the flexor digitorum superficialis in a fundamental way. Actually, a small caveat at the start is the anatomical variation of this muscle, which has an evolutionary basis. The flexor digitorum profundus, of course, has a dual nerve supply. It has a median nerve, or more correctly, the anterior interosseous nerve and the ulnar nerves, and that's a bit of a giveaway to its understanding. The FDP can be cleaved to form a separate flexor indices profundus, which can, if large, lead to compression of the anterior interosseous nerve. There are also some other variations of this muscle. There can be connections between the flexor digitorum profundus and the flexor digitorum superficialis as little slips. There can be some connections between the FDP and the flexor pollicis longus. There can be an increase in the number of muscle bellies or there can sometimes be an absent tendon, usually to the middle finger. And these things are all important in the surgical um, uh, approaches to the palm and wrist. The flexor digitorum profundus is the sort of real bulk of the forearm, and it arises from the medial olecranon and the upper about three quarters of the medial and anterior surfaces of the ulna, 
with a little bit of the interosseous membrane. The tendon for the index, as I've said, separates off <coughs> pretty quickly, increasing um, index dexterity. And the other tendons are still attached over the carpus. They don't really separate until about the mid-palm. And as they do, they give rise to the lumbricals, which we'll discuss in a later podcast. The nerve supply, as I've said, is dual, the anterior interosseous nerve and the ulnar nerve. And the innervation, that is the index and middle versus the ring and little, is also the separable supply, innervation supply, of the lumbricals. So there's a fidelity. The, the, the bits of the FDP that are innervated are the lumbricals that are also innervated by either the anterior interosseous nerve or the ulnar nerve. Now, the 2-2 split occurs in about 60% of cases, with the split as either a 3-1 or a 1-3, evenly divided in about 20% each. Of course, the FDP is a powerful flexor of the wrist, but also particularly for its purest function and its assessment of injury, the distal interphalangeal joint. And of course, it's important in, as the main muscle of grip. Uh, the next muscle is the flexor pollicis longus. We briefly met this already. The muscle arises from the front surface of the radius below the anterior oblique line, a little bit of the interosseous membrane, and there can be some fibres coming from the medial border also of the coronoid process of the ulna. It too, the FPL, can have a dual origin, a little like the FDS. Anyway, the muscle comes down to the wrist as a radial insertion muscle into the side of the tendon so that the muscle of the wrist, as I've said, is always easily distinguishable from the flexor carpi radialis, which is only tendon here. The flexor pollicis longus passes into the palm deep to the flexor carpi radialis and it's inserted into the base of the distal phalanx of the thumb. It's innervated by the anterior interosseous nerve and it's the only flexor of the interphalangeal joint of the thumb. Of course, it's implicated in flexion of the MCP joint and the carpal joints and the wrist, but its principal function is on the thumb. We're finally left with the pronata quadratus. That's the last deep muscle, and that arises from the lower quarter of the front of the ulna. It's inserted into the similar place on the anterolateral radius border just above the radial styloid process. If you get out a radius and you just check that point out, the muscle also has an insertion into that small triangular area just above the ulna notch and that's in front of the part of the interosseous membrane so that above that is the so-called sacciform extension deep to the um, pronatic quadratus, the sacciform extension of the capsule of the distal radioalna joint. The muscle is innervated by the anterior interosseous nerve. Uh, it's an important pronator and it prevents radioalna distraction when the hand is bearing weight. Now, the next bits that we're going to go into, I, I think we'll leave it for a second podcast. So part two of this will be the neurovascular pattern, which we want to discuss, and the osteology of the radius. And then I'll get into the extensor compartment of the arm. So this is becoming a little bit more um, uh, lengthy. We'll separate the podcast here and add a part to um, uh, later on. Thanks again so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.